Our God is able still to save. Amen? Do you have some people in your life who you are praying for and urging the Lord to, uh, to save? Do you have some people? Are you praying for some people? Are you speaking to some people? Are you telling some people that the King is coming? The kingdom of God is near. It is at, right at hand. And uh, he's coming for those who are in his kingdom. And so it is our, uh, our great joy and privilege and responsibility and urgency for us to call on the name of the Lord and to call out that, that he would save those who are lost. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to God in prayer for a moment. Father, um, we are grateful to be here in this place this morning together to uh, spur one another on to love and good works, to, to gather together and lift up our voices and to praise you and to remind each other that you are a, a prayer-answering God and that you are a saving God. And, and to remind each other that, uh, that those who are yet to be saved uh, can be and that we are, are your witnesses. And I pray, Father, that our hearts will be stirred. I, I pray that the Word of God will, uh, will reach deep into our heart this morning and, and, and grab hold of them and that we will not be the same. Father, we need to be people who are changed. You've, you've uh, saved us that you might transform us. You've not saved us simply to inform us of who you are, but rather to change us into the likeness of who you are. And I pray, O oh God, that we would cooperate with that. I pray that that would be the passion of our hearts and our lives. I pray that from this congregation, a, a great revival would break forth and that our region and our province and our land and our world would be shaken. And I, uh, God, I pray that um, in the same way that you shook the world with 12, that you will take these thousand people and shake our hearts and our lives to do uh, incredible things in your great and powerful name. And so I pray, Father, this morning that your word will uh, be received and welcomed. We already know that it will not return to you without accomplishing what you have uh, ordained for it to accomplish. And so I pray with great anticipation of what you're going to do. You are at work among us. We thank you for your work. We thank you for the work that you have been doing this week and changing lives and, and uh, taking charge of this church. And, oh, God, I pray that you might uh, uh, continue to, to freewheel here in any way you choose because this is your church. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. This is yours. We're your people. You're building your church. Uh, we just want to be your disciples, Lord, and I pray that you'll help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, I had a, have a friend, you know, he's, I told you this, he, he likes to see you and say, isn't it, isn't it great to be saved? Is it great to be saved? Amen. Amen. It's great to be saved. Uh, you know, um, each generation is presented with an option to be the last vestige and remnant of the truth of God, the things of God, or to be used of God to bring radical revival and shake the world for Christ. Each generation, God sets that out before each generation. And, and we know that if, if Christian history tells us anything, it tells us that we are on the way to one or the other. We either, either on the way to becoming the last remnant of truth, or we are on the way to shaking the world for Christ. And I don't know about you, but I want to be the, the latter. I want to be on the way to shaking the world for Christ. I want to be that people. And so um, 
we're, we're, the question is always put before us, will we leave truth burning brighter or barely burning? The challenge for us is to fuel a further reaching fire for Christ in what I think all of us will agree is a biblically and morally dampening culture. Every year, respect for moral truth hits a new low water mark. You know this, you live in the same world I live in. In fact, you live likely more regularly in the world than I do. And so you know full well what I'm talking about. And this morning we come to the end of a long journey that God has taken us in the book of Nehemiah. Would you turn there with me please to Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, he has been speaking to us and this is a package deal, although it has been uh, unpackaged week after week, God is speaking to us in a, in a package deal here about a passion for God. Uh, that's really what Nehemiah was all about. It was about a people who had lost their way, a people who had, had become wayward in their faith and their passion, their commitment, and about a leader that God rose up to come and challenge them to not be the last vestige of a, a remnant faithful to God, but to be the people who would spark a, a revival that would, would move in their community and move on throughout the world. And um, it, it is our desire and our passion that as we come to this culmination of what God has been saying to us, that for sure we don't allow this to be simply a gathering of information. Oh, wasn't it nice? We talked to each other. Wasn't it nice to learn more about the book of Nehemiah? You know, I've never done a thorough study of Nehemiah like we did here at Calvary this past number of months. Wasn't that something? I, I know a lot more. It would be a tragic thing if that were the conversations that we had with each other. This is not being a presentation of information. This has been the Word of God. And he's been speaking to us, and the Word of God is living. It's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it pierces through the bone right to the marrow. Uh, the intention of God is that His Word would radically change our lives. And if we have heard the book of Nehemiah and have made no changes in our life, then it has been a failure in our life. God's Word is vitally uh, vitally at work in our lives and, and must be as we apply his truth. Now, if, uh, I, you know, it's important for me, I think, to, to give a sweeping summary of where we've been. Uh, what happened is Nehemiah came back to Israel and found out that there was a people there who had lost their identity. And they had allowed that uh, identity that was marked by the walls around Jerusalem to become uh, ruined. They had lost their passion or commitment to uh, the, the, uh, the protection of their lives in terms of, uh, of moral purity before God. And so the gates and the doors were burned down and gone. It was freewheeling access into their lives. They had allowed their hearts to grow cold toward God. And so Nehemiah came to the, this people uh, and he challenged them with their identity you are, you are the people of the living God of the universe. And so they took up the challenge and they, they rebuilt the walls of their identity as the, the people of the kingdom of God. We are his people, God's people. And they took up the challenge to, to repair the, the, the doors and the gates 
that there would no longer be free access from the enemies to, to have uh, free reign and free wheel into, into their, their, their setting. And we find that as we, by the time we get to chapter 13 of Nehemiah, Nehemiah had been with them for 12 years challenging them to, to, to live out their identity. And he went away. And when he came back, he found out that nothing had changed. They had good walls and they had good gates. But they didn't have changed hearts. Nothing had happened inside. And that's the regular plight of those who call themselves Christian by identity. We have claimed the name of Christ. We are Christian. And so we're proud and pleased of our identity. In fact, you wouldn't be here this morning, I would gather, unless you had embraced the identity of Christ. You call yourself Christian. You're somehow embarking on a journey that says, this is my identity. And you've probably laid claim to a certain amount of behavioral changes and modifications in your life to prevent certain access freewheeling in your life. But the question that must be answered and must be faced as we come upon the end of this, this great book is has your identity in Christ and, and some of the behavioral modifications that are related to the identity, have they shaped your heart? Ha, has God changed your heart? And, and it's the danger when we come upon a, an Old Testament passage is to look at it from a New Testament perspective, a New Testament grace-filled church perspective and say, well, all of that's nice information and it's interesting history, but what God was teaching and telling and requiring of that people is not really applying to us because we're New Testament. And so the laws that were, were imposed upon the people of that day, they don't really apply to us and we, we have some sort of confusion about how do we apply this and what, what is expected of us? I've come to the firm conviction, and, and I'm sure some of you have as well, and, and Jesus is the one who taught us this. He said, listen, all of the law and the prophets can be summed up in this one command, and the second is like it. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all of the law and the prophets hang on this. What? Hang on what? They hang on loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body, and loving your neighbor as yourself. I've become firmly convinced that, that the only way that the New Testament community can interpret the Old Testament rules and responsibilities is to understand that all of those were given to those people as acts of love from God. And the responsibility to keep those laws was in turn acts of love toward God. And if you want to understand how to apply the Old Testament in the New Testament context, look at it through the lens of love. And understand that God is always asking the question in his word as he teaches us the things to obey. Do you love me or not? Are you speaking my love language? And so as we bear down on Nehemiah chapter 13 and complete this, this book, I, I want to uh, draw you into this love letter from God. And he answers the question in this last chapter. Nehemiah comes back and says to the people, what happened to you? You've got the identity. You've got the gates. 
but you don't have the heart of love. What you didn't acquire is a love for God. The reason that you so easily abandoned the behavior that would have demonstrated your love for God is because nothing has changed in your heart. You don't really love Him. And so this morning, beloved, we have to face some hard questions in our lives. Is our behavior squaring with the claims that we have as those who claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body, and to love our neighbors ourselves? That's the question that matters. That's the question that measures the truth and reality and authenticity of who you really are. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want to point out four, four um, identification markers, behavior markers, that say, I love you, God. I want to start here in verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed of the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all of this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I'd returned to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased, and I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I want to stop there. First issue. He goes away, comes back, and finds out that there's now no room in the place of God's temple for things that are supposed to be devoted and dedicated to the holy responsibility of the things of God. Now what's going on here? I, I want you to know that that the first robust intervention that must take place in our lives is that holiness is not negotiable to those who call themselves believers. So throw the garbage out of your lives. Holiness is not optional. We regularly come upon people who seem to think that holiness is something for a special, a special elite fighting force of Christian. Holiness is necessary for everyone who calls themselves or identifies themselves as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the reason that I say that with authority is because in Hebrews 12 verse 14 it says this, Without holiness no one will see God. How seriously do you think it is then? I mean he lays it on the line, the New Testament writer lays it on the line for us. This is not optional. This is not negotiable. Without this, you won't see God. Now, what is this holiness? Holiness is setting yourself apart for the purposes of God. Setting all of yourself apart for the purposes of God. The problem in the temple here is that the whole temple was no longer available to God. It was being used by Tobiah. 
Eliashab, the priest, I suppose, got it in his mind because it was a very tolerant society. It was a very politically correct society that it might be really culturally um, uh, relational if he were to give Tobiah uh, an Ammonite, if he were to give him uh, a Jew Ammonite, if he were to give him some space in the temple. Wouldn't it be nice to accommodate uh, the culture just a little bit and, and send a message to everybody in the world, look how inclusive we are. Tobiah was a mocker of the living God. This was not some sort of witnessing operation whereby Eliashab the priest was saying, I want to see this guy redeemed. I want to see this guy brought into the kingdom of God. No, he wasn't interested in redemption. This wasn't a witnessing opportunity. This wasn't a salvation adventure. This was just accommodation of a mocker of the living God in a temple space of the living God. That's all this was. Why do you think Nehemiah was so displeased when he came back? There was no room to put the offerings that were supposed to finance all the workers for the worship of God. And so you're going to find out they all went back to their fields and had to make a living because Tobiah had set up his office in the temple of God. Now, um, the problem with all of this accommodation is pretty obvious, I think. You say, well, surely religious leaders are not like that today. I picked up an article by the, that, that is written with respect to the presiding bishop of the United States Episcopal Church. Now, the United States Episcopal Church is the equivalent of our Anglican Church here in Canada, the Church of England. This uh, bishop, the Episcopal bishop, um, her name is uh, Catherine Shorey, and she has a unique interpretation of the time that the Apostle Paul was being dogged by the woman that was possessed by a demon who kept calling out, what you have to do with me Paul, why, why is the living God uh, uh, hassling us? And uh, th this bishop writes this about the particular incident as she's exegeting the passage and teaching on it in a public forum in uh, Venezuela. And she says, many people come to recognize that different is not the same thing as wrong. particularly if God is doing something unexpected. The bottom line of her sermon was that Paul was incorrect in viewing this woman as demon-possessed. In fact, she should have welcomed her into the big tent of God because God was doing something different. God was bringing demon-possessed people into his big tent. And allowing them to be in the tent while they're demon-possessed. Nehemiah comes back and he says, this is incredibly wrong. We are attempting to fashion God by our own fancies now. 
Instead of setting ourselves apart for God's purposes, what we are attempting to do is set God apart for our purposes. That stands holiness on its head. The simple reality is that Eliashab was allowing things that were mocking God to displace God. The idolatry of accommodation. And to apply that to our lives, we need to ask the simple question, what's crowding God's space in your life? What's crowding out God's space? What, what in your life has been allowed to come in that is not any longer making room for God? What, what is it that is crowding him out. What isn't of God crowds out what is. Know this in your life. Holy purposes depend upon holy people. Only disciples can make other disciples. It's not that we've consciously ignored God. That wasn't the case here. It's just we're crowding him out. And with him go his purposes. And some things in your life, beloved, need a righteous show and tell. Nehemiah went in with all the political correctness in the world, opened up the door, gathered the guy's office furniture, and threw it out of the building. That's what you do. You don't negotiate with things that are mocking God in your life. You don't negotiate with things that are crowding out your passion for God. It seems to me that this is not a, a slow transition that Nehemiah is suggesting. This is an immediate action. Deal with it in a very, very radical way. And so he cleans out the whole room and throws it outside of the temple. And it seems to me that it is time for some of us in our lives, in the areas that God is convicting us, to do some righteous show and tell. And let me ask you the question, what have you thrown out or what are you willing to throw out or must, what must you throw out of your life to make room for Christ? You, you need to answer this question or fill in this question. There would be more room for God in my life if I spent less time blank. I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of this sermon for application. I don't want you to just listen to this message. I want the convicting work of God to answer these questions. What would allow more room in my life for God if I were to outsource or get rid of or throw out blank? There's a, a big coaching hockey reality, hockey term that, that, uh, that all coaches are pressing upon their players in these days. Take away the opposition's time and space. Right? You know this? Hockey guys know this. You won't lose if you take away the opposition's time and space. So kick out. Get rid of stuff that is taking away time and space from God. That's the issue here in your life. Worldliness, John Piper writes in his book, A Tribute to My Father... Worldliness means fascination with inferior joys. Don't buy into it. Well, there's a second. Notice what else he says in verse 10. I also learned that 
the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for their service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms. And made Hanan, son of Zachor, the son of Metaniah, or Metaniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. All right, so God's love language number one is space. But what's God's love language number two? Let me say this to you. Treasure always tells the tale of your heart. There is a distinct treasure heart connection correlation. Wherever the one is, you'll find the other. They chase each other. You want to find someone's heart? Go find their treasure. Whatever you invest most in, that is where your heart really is. And to debate this away is to self-deceive. I mean, we've been kidding ourselves for a long time, but let's stop kidding ourselves. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And where your heart really is, that's where your treasure is. I'm not the one who made this up, am I? You all know this. You've encountered it before. It's Jesus who said this. Do not store up, Matthew 6, 19, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where the thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's true. I mean, we know this. And so let me ask you, what tale is your treasure telling in the chapter of your life that's titled The Work of God? The chapter of your life that's written The House of God, The Work of God, The Mission of God. What tale? is being told in that chapter of your life with respect to your treasure. Is that where your heart is? When Nehemiah went away, the money available to finance the work of God went away as well. That's what this tells us. That's what he encountered. And do you notice what God's word calls it? Verse 11? Notice in verse 11. Neglect. God calls it neglect. Now, there are two temptations in life with respect to the giving of our finances toward the mission of God. Two temptations. One is to try and bribe God, and the other is to rob Him. And regularly, the people who identify themselves as believers find themselves in one of those two categories. I'm either trying to bribe God with my giving or I'm trying to rob God from my giving. We bribe God because we think, well, maybe if I give God some money, he'll bless me. And so we use our giving superstitiously. 
You know, we offload a, a great big gift into the offering plate and we think, hey God, now you owe me big time. That's, a, that's an attempt to bribe God. That's what we call superstition. That's not what we call Christianity. The second equally damaging methodology in the terms of giving is to rob God. I think this is likely more common, is to rob God. The prophet who was writing at the time of Nehemiah was the prophet Malachi. Malachi gives a dynamic description of what robbing God really looks like. In Malachi, right at the back of your Old Testament, he talks there in chapter 1 about, about robbing God. He says in verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm your father, God says, where is the honor due me? I, I mean, you show more honor to your own earthly father, you show more honor to your employer than you do to me, the living God. I'm the one who really takes care of you. I'm the one who provides for you. I'm the one who really gives you a job. I'm the one who really gives you life. Not your earthly father and not your employer. Why do you honor them so much but dishonor me? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. The leaders were de demonstrating this. How have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. Do you ask how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now I implore God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors. Listen, they, they were taking and they were looking at their flock and saying, Oh, I can't use that thing. I'm not going to make any money on that lamb. And it's only going to be sacrificed in the temple anyway. So let's take that one-eyed lamb and take it to the temple because no one's going to buy that. I'm not going to make any money for that. It cost them nothing to give that one away. He says, try doing that to the governor. You wouldn't think of it. Try telling that to the tax collectors in Oshawa or Whitby or wherever you're from. I'm sorry, I had a busy entertainment month and uh, so I'm just not going to pay my taxes. No harm, no foul, I take it. They'll slap a for sale sign up on your house so fast. God's basically saying, hey, try doing that to City Hall, what you are trying to do at church. Why would you be so respectful of City Hall and the outrageous taxes of Oshawa? And you come into church, and you flip a few quarters onto a plate. Is ministry, mission, God's work just a cheap hobby for you? Is this a real cheap place to come and be entertained on a Sunday morning? Well, they don't even have a ticket price here. 
costs more to go to a movie than it does to come to Calvary Baptist Church. We haven't begun to invest in ministry the way we could with this group of people. Not, sev not just several weeks ago, most of you all got up on your feet, went to the communion table. I preached the same sermon as I'm preaching this morning. Those were promises in the sight of God that there would be changes in your life. Our offering hasn't gone up. In fact, it's gone down. Do you realize that we have more people in church this year than last year? And our offerings are lower this year than last year? Does that translate into some sort of passion for the mission of God? For any of you mathematicians out there this morning, if you were to break down our offerings and assume that everybody's tithing here, you know what our average income is? Between $12 and $13 an hour. Now I know that some of you may make $12 or $13 an hour, but I can tell you as I look out on a thousand people, there's no way you're making $12 or $13 an hour. So why do our offerings reflect that? You're given blind sheep to God. You're given broken-legged goats to God. You're given stuff that you don't need to God. And thinking that you're showing him a great act of love. And you're saying to me, oh, that's all Old Testament stuff. God was asked his opinion one time. What would be a demonstration a value that would show appropriate love for God. And he answered it. He said 10%. He said 10%. This wasn't about a law. This is about people saying, God, what would it look like if we loved you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body? Would you tell us? Would you please help us? This is how you know that God is, is male. You see... When you ask a woman, how could I show you that I love you? She'll say to you, you should just know. <laughs> if I have to tell you, it means you don't really know me very well. It means you don't really love me much. God's not like that. They said, hey, God, how much do we need to give you? And he said, 10% of what I give you. That's what I want. So for me, New Testament, Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. I know God. God says, your empty promises don't finance my mission. But your 10% will. He's done the math, not me. I don't get it. But God seems to think that if his people would open up their pockets with 10% of everything he gives them. He could accomplish everything he wants to accomplish in his mission. That's what God thinks. And so that's the challenge that I put over you. God's love language in giving 
is generosity. And he says, I want you to station some people at their posts. I want the trustworthy people at their posts to make sure this happens. John Maxwell, when he pastored Skyway Wesleyan Church, don't get nervous now. You're going to get real nervous when I tell you this. John Maxwell, when he pastored Wesleyan, uh, Skyway Wesleyan Church, or Skyline, I forget what it's called, in California, insisted as pastor to see the year-end receipts of all of the people who claimed to be followers of Christ and members of his church. And for sure, the leaders had to turn in their givings. You know why? He said, I don't want any thieves leading in my church. Now, I told you, don't get nervous. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Because it's about a love language. This is not about a law. This is about how much do you love God? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, you know, there was another thing that comes up here. As if this wasn't enough. Verse 15, in those days I also saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on the donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of, of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them. And I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'm going to beat you up. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Of course. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. What you all need to know is that I've asked the leaders to go and lock all the doors of the church so none of you can leave here for the rest of the day. No, I haven't. That's what Nehemiah would do if he was your leader. Ripples will rock our cultural boats when we wrestle every Sunday back for the Lord. You hearing me? Nehemiah noticed that reform was being deformed and revival was being smothered because God's people were treating the Lord's day like any other day. And um, we're going to leap all over New Testament and Old Testament again. But I'll tell you what the lost people are noticing. They're looking at us and say, you don't even take God's day seriously. You don't even take God's day seriously. If we had been taking God's day seriously, we would have never lost God's day to the secular takeover, whereby everything is just as it is, 
six other days of the week. You realize there was a day when the Toronto Maple Leafs were not allowed to play Sunday hockey in Toronto? Do you understand that? Do we understand where we've come from? A little leeway on the Lord's Day may become a complete sellout. That's why Nehemiah said, guard the gates. I would submit to you that those who begrudge God money usually resent giving him time as well. Now listen, I'm going to get personal and up front with you again. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? We have about 25 to 2,800 people who identify with Calvary Baptist Church. Look around you. How many do we have here today? 900? 1,000? Let's be evangelistically generous. We have 40%. 40% of all the people who claim that their identity, their wall, is Christian and it's Calvary. That means we have 60% no-shows on every given Sunday. 60% no-show. The U.S. average, by the way, is that people are going to church, evangelicals going to church, 1.6 Sundays per month. 1.6. How many did God say per month? What's your math? Huh? Four. Sometimes five. Because often there might be five Sundays in a month. Isn't that God's math? We're now down to 1.6 because we're smarter than God. And we have a lot of things going on. We don't have much time anymore. Michael Haken, professor at uh, a number of, of great evangelical seminaries, says this of the Lord's Day. It is the market day of the soul. I like that. He calls it the Sunday, S-O-N day. The day for the word to be heard. And it says in the word of God that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Are you feeling some sort of faith deficiency? If you're hit and miss in church, it might be that might be the reason. Maybe this is your first time in church in a month. Or second time in a month. You're feeling a real faith depletion in your life. Well, faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. It's a preeminent way for spiritual growth, you know, to hear God's word. Preach the word. It is through the preaching of God's word that, that God's spirit challenges our lives. In the New Testament, word and the Lord's table are channels for seeking out the spirit of God. He speaks to us. He comes to us. There's an important gathering event that takes place. In the gathering of God's people to proclaim the goodness of God. It's a day of spiritual opportunity to extricate ourselves from the secular concerns and give ourselves fully to the living God. One in seven, that's what he asks. One in seven is healthy. One in seven is the language of God. It's the language of his love. Do you love me? Come and talk to me. Come and see me. Come and gather. One in seven, that's what he says. 
we thereby proclaim to the secular every day that you get up out of your bed on Sunday morning, get in your car, you're declaring to your neighborhood, Jesus matters to me. That's the message that you're sending to the people who are lost. If Jesus mattered to us more, maybe he would matter to them. If Jesus doesn't matter to us, why should he matter to them? How Old Testament-ish is the Sabbath issue? You know, work, play, dining out, all that kind of stuff. Listen, you know what? When Jesus turned a wheat field into a restaurant in the New Testament, he made a message. He stated that my grace-driven kingdom would be regimented under the good counsel of the Holy Spirit. It supersedes legalistic restrictions. But I'll tell you, there is a principle that holds through. And it is found in Isaiah 58. And it is not hard to understand. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please or your own pleasure on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way, and not doing your own pleasures or speaking your own words but listening to my word, then you will find your joy in the Lord and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you see what it's all about? It's about delighting in the Lord and setting aside this day to do this. To not go after your own pleasures. The word own in the original is there four times. Not your own pleasures, not your own way, not your own words, not your own pleasures. But delighting yourself in me, not begrudging me this day, but longing to be with me this day. Because my language is time. The language of my love is time. I want time with you. Everybody, listen, we're not talking about a religion. If we were talking about a religion, none of, I wouldn't be talking to you about any of this stuff. All of this stuff is about a relationship, space in your life. That's relational. Generosity, that's relational. Time, that's relational. The command is to gather for worship. Surprisingly, to stimulate one another to love God, our neighbors, our brothers and our sisters... And exercise our giftedness, which God so graciously has given to us. Imagine, Christ gave gifts to man and women. Pastor Ken said this morning in his prayer, this might be the last time we'll see you for the summer. A bit of my hair stood up in the back of my... I was like going to take you out, Ken. <laughs> but I know your heart. And it may be so. But don't take a vacation from God. Don't, whatever you do, miss Sunday. Pleasure, your pleasure is God. Not your own pleasures. Not your own words. You've had your own words six days of the week and they haven't done very well for you. You need God's words. 
I got to wrap this up. What are your non-negotiable boundaries to ensure that the Lord's day is exclusively reserved for the pursuit of Christ? You need to do this. And then finally this. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who were married to women from Ashdod, Ammon, Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. And how, how big a deal was this? I beat some of the men up and pulled out their hair. Listen, listen to me carefully. Without a fierce possessiveness over the souls of the next generation, the future of faith is lost. What's the problem here? They had allowed a, a mixed passion religion to come into their homes. And as a result, some of the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. What's the big deal? That meant they couldn't speak the language of God's word. They didn't even know God's word. And if you interview seminary uh, professors today, increasingly entry-level, Bible-believing kids from evangelical, Bible-believing churches are becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. Now, what's that all about? It's about some unknown, to me, unknown uh, um, um, recklessness toward the issues of our children and raising the next generation to have a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this to you over and over again, but maybe we're not getting it. We are the last generation of truth unless we pass it on to our next generation. We're it. We're the end of the road. Christianity stops right here unless we pass it on to the next generation. And if we don't have a passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no possible way our children will have. That's what this was all about. They were recklessly letting anybody come into their homes in marriage and all of that, and the children didn't even know the language of God. They didn't even know who God was. We're letting our children play on the highway to hell. And we're saying stuff like, well, you know what? You've got to give them a little bit of space or they rebel. They're already rebelling. Or they wouldn't want to be on the highway to hell. No, you've got to rescue them, save them, move them off. Stop. Be a parent. Stand up and start parenting your children. And stop allowing children to parent their parents. This is the call of God on our lives. With fierce possessiveness, hold on to your children for dear life. And learn to say No. This is not honoring to God. We will not do this. You're not doing this. Where are they going to go? I had an 11-year-old move out of the house one day. <laughs> go ahead, dude, move out. Take your little stick and tie a little round sachet on it. and You march out of the house. You go on, go on. Go out in the street. Go ahead. And he did. Until he realized, where am I going to go? There's only one family in the world that wants me. And he came back. And I've had him ever since. What language do you intend for your children to speak? What's your language? Because your culture... The culture of your home will determine the culture of your children.
I understand, listen, hey, I understand we just don't have time to give all of the eventualities. I know the good, gracious, God-loving, passionate, committed to God homes have lived through the heartache of, of children who resist. I understand. We know this. Just don't make it because of you. That's all. We put our kids in French immersion, baseball, soccer, ballet, dance, hula hoop, advanced hula hoop. And that's just the girls. But we don't put them in Christian immersion. Nehemiah says, put them in Christian immersion, because that's God's love language. God spells love this way. Loyalty, L-O-Y-O-L-T-Y. Or that way. <laughs> How are you ensuring that your children speak Christ's language? Look, Christianity is not self-discipline. It's not self-improvement. It's not self-fulfillment. It's self-denial. So it costs. It costs your whole life. We've been talking about the love languages of God. It's going to cost you everything. And God says, you do this, and I'll give you everything. Our Father and our God, you have worked us over in this book. These are your words. And we must go beyond identity and beyond access gates and doors to application of heart. Or we will leave this room the way those people left Nehemiah and didn't change one thing. So God, I pray this morning as we have sat under your word to us, we're asking for you to move powerfully to the place of application. I must do this or I will not speak the language of God's love. So Father, I ask for a powerful work of your spirit now in the culmination of what you've done over these months, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, right where you are this morning, I want you to take out your bulletin. And in your bulletin, there's a worksheet. And I know time is gone now, but it's not gone from God. In there, there's two, at least two copies in every bulletin because I know that some of you just take one per family. And I'm telling you that it is imperative. It is absolutely necessary this morning. We, we have got up on our feet and we've walked to the communion table and made promises to God. And from a package deal, a corporate deal, nothing has changed. The offering's still the same. Your attendance is still the same. So nothing changed when you got up and walked to the Lord's table. 
we had an amazing work of God last Sunday morning where you got up and you were asked, are you all in? And, and, and 50 or so of you said, I'm all in. And I presume that many more of you were, are already all in. But you know what? We, we need to see something that's really different. Or we're not really all in. So today's about heart. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and go to the Lord's table or anything like that. I'm going to tell you right where you are, under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, I am asking you to fill out those sheets, every single one of you. There's something there that I need to make a change. I know what I, I, I've got mine all done. I have to make a change in something in order for me to speak God's love language in a certain area of my life. I have to change it. I've got to apply that to my life. And you must too. This is a call to the heart this morning. So I'm asking you to, to take this and take it seriously. Let the convicting work of God work on your heart. If you walk out of here and you don't make a commitment to God, it will be gone. I know this. It will be gone. Make your commitment this morning to God and hold yourself to it. Better yet, tell your commitment to your spouse or to someone else and make, get them to hold you to it. Accountability. Are you making the change? Are you making the change? I'm going to pray for you. I'm praying for you. Are you making that change? Come on, beloved. Let's not use this as information. This is about application and change of life. Let's go for it. J.I. Packer wrote this. The quality of your life will be enriched directly by how you treat the Lord's holy day. If you steal it or complain about it or abuse it, your story will be very different. If you're excited to be with me, God says, I'll make your whole life exciting. God is telling us all of this because he loves us. This is hard stuff. It's hard for me to tell you. I'm telling you, I tell you this because I love you so, so much. And I want you to have and experience every possible thing God has for you. God wants to enrich your life beyond your wildest imagination. Would you take him up on his love language? Would you? Oh, God. We're desperate for a movement of the Holy Spirit that would be worthy of your greatness. As we cooperate with what you want to do in our lives. So, God, we give ourselves to you. Convict us and convince us and cause us to act upon your word in our life today, Lord, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.